from the book of Leviticus, chapter 24. A man whose mother was an Israelite and whose father was an Egyptian came out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and certain Israelite began fighting in the camp. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name in a curse, and they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelemith, daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the decision of the Lord should be made clear to them. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Take the blasphemer outside the camp and let all who were within hearing lay their hands on his head and let the whole congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Anyone who curses God shall bear the sin. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. Aliens as well as citizens, when they blaspheme the name, shall be put to death. Anyone who kills a human being shall be put to death. Anyone who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. One who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, but one who kills a human being shall be put to death. You shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen, for I am the Lord your God. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him to death. The people of Israel did as the Lord had commanded Moses. The word of God. Thank you, Pastor Icky, and thank you, members of the pastoral staff, for your leading and caring for our souls. I'm going to begin with a prayer in song. God be in my head and in my thinking. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking, oh. God be in my heart and in my understanding. If you read the teaser that went out in print, you have already heard this. Texts like Leviticus 24 provoked Thomas Paine to write in his famous book, The Age of Reason, that whenever we read the obscene stories, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it's more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of God. And remarks like that provoked Ellen White to write of Thomas Paine. Satan dictated much of his writings. And Thomas Paine, while living, was a devout servant of the evil one. I'm not concerned about a spat between Ellen White and Thomas Paine. What unsettles me this morning comes directly from the words of Scripture. A reader today experiences the strangeness of the world that produced the book of Leviticus. 
Leviticus is a book that prescribes how to punish a priest's daughter caught in illicit sex. No, you don't stone her to death like you do the other women caught compromised like that. Rather, you burn her. Leviticus is a book that forbids a bereaved priest from following his wife's casket to the place of burial. Leviticus is a legal book that does not protect the working rights of the disabled. Rather, it encodes work discrimination against the disabled. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Leviticus, a book that details a disturbing report of the execution of an Afro-Asiatic resident in Israel, nowhere else in Scripture except Leviticus, do we find a record of a man stoned for the offense of blasphemy. It just happens, or we should say it just so happens, that the man is Pan-African. In Leviticus, we read about a fight between two men. On the one side, we find a man whose mother was an Israelite and his father an Egyptian. On the other side, a certain Israelite. That is kind of a code word for just a man. In the course of the heated fight, the Bible says the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name in a curse. They bring him to Moses. They hold him in custody. Moses inquires of the Lord, and the response comes. Take the blasphemer outside the camp. Let all who were within hearing lay their hands on his head and let the whole congregation stone him. This was the case. The case serves as a pretext to educate the people. What's the lesson? The laws of Israel apply to citizens and the resident alien equally. One of the reasons for this was that the writer recognizes that holiness is not simply located in the tabernacle, but it is the whole land of Israel that is holy. All who live in the land hold the potential of polluting the land. Thus, the holiness codes also apply to them as well with respect to the land. The resident alien, too, in other words, is bound by all the laws that protect the land. Furthermore, the case becomes an opportunity to clarify which of the other civil laws that were mentioned earlier in the book also apply to the stranger living among the tribes of Israel. Finally, the principle of retaliation is to guide the application of the laws for each and every resident. The punishment must fit the crime for alien as well as for citizen. You shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen, for I am the Lord your God. The text ends with the note that the people complied with the judgment of execution. It says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him to death. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So in one sense, we see the advance in legal wisdom. That is, no laws, laws no longer cover just the ethnic group. They apply to the territory and all that reside. Good work. 
Yet, a racial reading shows that the legal gains made in the text far outweigh the social, political, and religious gains made in the community. The people remained socially backward. To reinforce the case, imagine with me a kind of uh, fictitious picture of the encampment. Structured like a bullseye on a dartboard, the community planning layers, zones in concentric circles. Those closest to the patriarch's nuclear family reside in the bullseye. The clans more distantly related form the first circle around the bullseye. The farther the circles, the more marginal the relation to the tribal elites. We witness real boundaries, real but invisible and porous boundaries. The boundaries are porous because civil and social engineering can only go so far. You can write zoning laws for tents that have to be staked in the ground, but people move, and they move around. Not only the zoning law schema maps this territory, there's also the scent schema and the accent schema. A unique odor comes from the folk on the outermost circle of the dartboard. This odor is as strange as the accents they use when they speak the Hebrew tongue. The spices that season their different foods as the sweat that cool their heated bodies ooze the smell of the weird diets they consume. Those from the center of the tribal camp ignore the fact that people at the margins lack time to do household chores. They ignore the extended hours and overworked schedules. They only notice the hastily washed, stain-retaining garments that those people wear. A careful observer now sees how social, legal, in other words, artificial differences, take on scripts that morph into a deceptive impression that social boundaries are actually natural boundaries. The folk who live in the farthest area of the tribal camp live there because they naturally belong on the margins. They are poor, lazy, different, dirty, lowly, penniless. The zone for community dumps and rubbish and trash just so happen to be in the same region as the zone of the polluted people. They're from the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. The half-breeds, the mongrels, the mestizo, the mulattoes. The folk in this region of the camp take on the embodiment of why crossing boundaries becomes forbidden. You just might get progeny with an Egyptian brood. What's really happening is that a social consensus guards an invisible boundary. This unspoken consensus holds imaginary exit and entrance points for different groups and different people. This consensus within the community hides each person 
from the need for introspection. If they direct me to look at the other, those folk, them people, then I don't have to look at myself. These boundaries mark where insiders belong and they mark where outsiders belong. Direct citizens to focus on the problems around them and they embrace a pretend peace by ignoring the problems within them. Permitting people to only look outward encourages neglect of turning inward. And here the facade of holiness stays intact. Yet buried beneath it, a bigger danger resides. And it just so happened in our text that the danger manifested. An Afro-Asiatic son of an Israeli woman finally decides no more. He dared to cross forbidden boundaries. The Bible says he came out among the people of Israel. No details about what caused him to come out are, are given. Maybe he decided to visit his elderly mother who in transitioning to housing for Israeli widows relocated closer to the tribal center. Or maybe he came with his mother from the marginal area to claim her rightful portion of the family land and demand that she receive her inheritance, which happened to be near the central tribal area. We don't know. But whatever happened, it ended in a shoving match. It went from shoving to wrestling, from wrestling to hitting, from hitting to kidding, kicking. It became a fight to the death. This African-Israeli crossed one boundary in the community where he resided just by being born. He's biracial. He crosses another boundary by coming out among the people of Israel. He doesn't stay in his place. He crosses a boundary by engaging in violence as a protest of his unjust discrimination. But finally, he crossed a boundary that went too far. In an impulsive eruption of anger, he blasphemed the name in a curse. Are you all still with me? The story doesn't say who was winning the fight, but it was clear that his last boundary crossing ensured his defeat. He ended up bound in prison. He remained until the decision of the Lord made clear, was made clear to them. He must die by stoning. The text says, the whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. His mother has a choice. Will she be an insider with the whole congregation or an outsider with her son? Here we find the only biblical account, an account written where the holiness code forbids mixing the sacred with the profane. The only biblical account where a mixed biracial man is stoned for blasphemy. He's an impure, a half-breed, a hybrid. 
a mixed race, Afro-Asiatic. One commentator says, he is not a villain personifying oppression and idolatry. He is a victim of impossible demands that a closed community places upon the marginalized individuals who live on its fringes. He's also a victim of a severely biased attitude that the deity seems to share in the story towards such individuals. But is the issue in this text really about punishment for blasphemy? Today's common sense people find this ridiculous. The common thought calls this a divine overreaction. A man utters God's name in a curse and you stone him to death? It's ridiculous. The average person today sides with Thomas Paine, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness of the Bible would be more consistent that we called it a, the word of a demon than the word of God. But two hints in the story and one from the testimony of Jesus' apostle lead the discerning Christian reader to suspect that the punishment for blasphemy theory is too simple an answer for all the complexities embedded in this text. First, the text says, anyone who curses God shall bear the sin. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Bible commentators note the construction of the Hebrew words in the phrase, anyone who curses God shall bear the sin can also be read, anyone who curses his God shall bear the sin. In other words, if you curse your other gods, let those gods deal with you accordingly. But if you blaspheme the name of the Lord, you shall be put to death. A reading like this leads us to ask, why would God forgive the idolatrous people of Israel who served other gods, but won't forgive this perpetual outsider living in proximity to, yet kept at arm's length from, a very closed community who just happened in anger to blaspheme his name. The second hint in the broader context which suggests it's not simply punishment for blasphemy is that the judgment of violation for the violation is not a punitive judgment. It's a purgative judgment. The code that governed this conduct fell, fell under ritual law, not criminal law. The death penalty did not punish the person. It purged the national land from defilement. This puts the problem of blasphemy in a category that struck at the heart of the communal identity. The question was not the guilt of the half-breed, but the appropriate penalty given his ambivalent social standing. The writer is underscoring the point that those of mixed parental heritage living on the land are also subject to the law regarding blasphemy, even if they don't worship Yahweh, because 
the defiled land must now be cleansed. But for followers of Christ, the testimony of the apostle Paul leads us to suspect that whatever lesson is revealed in this story, it is a lesson that calls for us to look deeper in order to find it and not on the surface. Listen to the words of Jesus' apostle when he wrote, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence, but I received mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We're coming to the gospel. The inverse of hiding the problems within you by looking for the problems without is that we also hide the beauty within when we envy the beauty without. Just imagine that half Egyptian, half Israelite man. He looked as handsome as Pastor Icky Tiny. I still hold to the conviction that in the text of Leviticus 24, despite all of its problems, despite all of the messiness, God is revealed. The text mirrors how God reveals God's self in and through our ongoing history and personal lives in all their mess. Read the text and you see both awesomeness and craziness mixed together. God's revelation comes in what is mixed and messy, according to human constructs. Not always where you think you'd find God, but God is there. When I come to passages like this one, I'm reminded of the great Baptist preacher, the Reverend Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor. He says, before there was a Bible, there was God. And before any word of the New Testament was ever written, Christ had completed the atoning work for our sins. I once heard a sermon by a Methodist Christian bishop, Dr. William Willimon, and while preaching on one of those difficult passages in Scripture like this one, he asked this question, where is God? Where is God in the text? Not in the story. Not in the way the inspired writer comments on the story. And then he says, no, God is standing beyond in the background looking at all the crazy ways we all get it wrong, including the inspired writer. God is patient with us, giving us new opportunities to grow and understand and discern. He helps us go beyond the struggles of the text to find the God of time and eternity. Today I ask the same question. Where is God in this text? But I want to look in the other direction to find God. Not the God who is transcendent beyond the text looking at our craziness. I already know that God is there. I want to look deeper into the text and into the context 
and into the silent mess within and find the God who is imminent. And verse 12 says it. They put him in custody until the decision of the Lord should be made clear. Folk, this text teaches us that you can't hear the sound of the Lord clearly when there's a lot of noise or when there's muting of the speaker's voice by the dirtiness that's placed around and on top of it. You can't see clearly when the object is obstructed by the junk that is placed in front of it. In other words, the social constructs in the text, in the clutter that drowns out the full message of God's revelation is what's muting it. So whether they heard the Lord clearly or not, the lesson for us today is that they sought the Lord, waited upon the Lord, trusted the Lord to guide and to decide what should be done. There's a priest named Richard Villadesal who says it this way. Religious silence is not simply the absence of sound, but is an active attitude of attending to the encounter with the absolute mystery in itself, unmediated by creatures, creating a space for contemplation. There's a genuine knowledge of God that is independent of biblical revelation, independent of biblical revelation. We, you and I, we are embodied, living texts of God's revelation. If we pause in silence, declutter our minds, we may find the most important word God ever had to say to us. Evie says it in her song. What could be said that hasn't been said about Jesus? What could be done that hasn't been done in his name? What can I say to express how I feel at this moment? This is a feeling that's never been felt quite the same. He loves me. And that's a brand new story. Without a doubt, there is a revelation of God in the verbal intellectual realm, but there is also a revelation of God in the nonverbal intuitive form. The center of the Christian message is not a purely intellectual faith. It's a life of love. And this is why a blaspheming apostle named Paul could write, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Folk, God saves sinners. The awesomeness and craziness that God reverses the holiness codes that separate the holy and the profane, reverses it by transgressing boundaries through the mixed parentage of creator and creature, Christ brings the revelation of God's saving love to humanity. 
So here's the lesson to take away from this text today. Don't sacralize our racist ideologies. Our social constructs need to be critically interrogated over and over again. Interrogated by a universal vision of a loving God who desires flourishing for each and every one of his creatures. To lose sight of this leads us to hear messages that were never signaled. This day, in the same land that we read about in the text, the question of boundaries and boundary crossing has heated up again. Stones are being thrown from airplanes and rocket grenades. In the midst of it all, our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters, some who reside in Israel, others who reside in the territories of Palestine, they wrestle to hear the call of Christ under the noise of bombs on how they are to actualize the kingdom of God in history as we all await the final consummation of God's ultimate vision for humankind. Today, many in our nation try to weigh in under the noise of propaganda on the question of what should be done over there. Let's learn from this story not to look outside and reinforce the prejudices that we hold, but to look inside and to ask, how do we treat the indigenous communities in America? What laws do we advocate for as we witness the desperation of a migrating community crossing the boundaries of our national borders? What are our attitudes toward those who identify as queer, black, Latino, white male or female, Asian, interracial, non-binary? Today, let's learn from the community in the text. Today, let's learn to sit in silence until the decision of the Lord should be made. And don't be surprised if what you find is an awesome, crazy, unexpected hope in the tragic, dangerous memory of God's saving action, not in separating the categories of sacred and profane, but infusing it together in a crucified and resurrected judge. And this is the word of the Lord for us today.